Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm joining you today from New York, where the whole world is talking about Donald Trump. But in fact, there is one other topic which uh, comes up when Trump is not in the headlines, and that is who will be the next Secretary General of the United Nations. And in order to make sense of that, to talk about the runners and the riders and the latest rumours about which uh, of the many European candidates, many of whom are ECFR council members, might be the next Secretary General, we have Richard Gowan. Senior Policy Fellow at ECFR and our man in New York in the United Nations. And uh, if you hear uh, background noises, uh, it's the New York traffic, which is uh, a ubiquitous soundtrack to, to all of the meetings that I've been to in this city. Richard, why don't you start by telling us where we're at in the process? Essentially, we are approaching the culmination of the race. There have been a series of straw polls in the Security Council uh, for so far, and they have delivered a pretty clear front-runner to replace Ban Ki-moon. That is Antonio Guterres, the former Portuguese Prime Minister and uh, previous UN refugee chief. Guterres has been the clear leader in all the polls. In any normal political system, uh, he would be a shoe in for the job. But there is still a suspicion that Russia, uh, who has veto power, over the the choice may block him because Moscow does not really want to form a NATO head of state uh, or head of government running the UN. And so other candidates are still in play. Of those who are declared, uh, the strongest challenger to Guterres is Miroslav Lajcak from Slovakia, uh, who has come up during the polls and is uh, pretty close to Guterres. But in the wings, there are other candidates still thinking about coming in very late. Uh, some people are talking about Sigrid Karg, who is a Dutch UN official based in the Middle East, who's very impressive. But the, the most compelling undeclared candidate is Kristalina Georgieva, the Vice President of the European Commission. And over the last 10 days or so, it's become obvious that she is trying to get into the race, probably with German support. And if she does come in, Uh, she will represent a really serious challenge to Guterres. So after three or four years of uh, campaigning by some candidates, we are approaching the climax, and we expect the real voting to begin uh, in October in the Security Council after these these straw polls have winnowed the field a little. So before we go into the weeds about the different candidates, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about the process. Who votes in these straw polls? All 15 members of the Security Council vote, uh, but they do so anonymously. And in theory, uh, the votes are confidential. In fact, they leak within uh, 15 minutes to to half an hour from uh, the completion of of the polling. Uh, All countries can encourage or discourage uh, candidates. So Guterres at the last... um, the last straw poll had 12 encourages and two discourages. The problem is, is that the five permanent members of the council uh, have 
veto power. So their opinion matters vastly more than the, uh, the other ten. And at the moment, uh, there is no, uh, there's no clarity over who the permanent members are uh, encouraging or discouraging. Uh, next month, when we get into the, the sort of the final game, uh, the permanent members of the council will use a different type of ballot to cast their vote. Uh, I think they have red ballots, and so that shows um, if there is someone who's actually willing to veto uh, veto a candidate. So, the straw polls that have happened. Are there hustings before people before countries vote? Is it the ambassadors of the different Security Council members who are actually voting, or how does that work? In the straw polls, it's um, the Security Council ambassadors or their deputies who who are casting the ballots. But um, since April, there's been a series of public hustings uh, in the UN General Assembly, which all countries have been able to attend, and NGOs have been able to attend. And this is the first time we've had these. Uh, public dialogues, as, as they're called, uh, for the candidates. It's an effort uh, to make the process more transparent than it was in the past. And one of the reasons that Guterres is doing so well at the moment is that he really aced these public appearances. At the start of the year, Guterres did not look like the strongest contender. Well, when, when we last did this podcast, you said that there were two basic tests, which was the testicular test, in other words, it had to be a woman, and secondly, the Eastern European test. So Guterres failed those two basic tests. And a lot of people have seen that, although he was clearly a, a serious candidate, uh, his, his gender and his national origin would rule him out. But the fact that he seemed to do so much better than a lot of the other candidates in the public hearings uh, really won the hearts and minds of a lot of diplomats here in New York and gave him a lot of momentum going into the Security Council straw polls and, and that momentum continues. So what does doing much better than the others actually mean? Uh, he told some jokes, um, which was a good start. But he also showed, uh, through his various public appearances, that he has a really good grasp on uh, the nitty-gritty details of, of UN operations uh, because he spent so long working on refugee, refugee issues. He has a, a full understanding of humanitarian affairs. That's to his advantage. Uh, he also showed that he simply is a, an easy and natural communicator. And that really matters at the moment because diplomats in New York have got pretty frustrated with Ban Ki-moon's somewhat limited communication ability and there's a feeling that but he can say nothing in so many languages <laughs> French, <laughs> Korean, English uh, and and he's uh, somewhat inarticulate in all of them um, I, I think there is a real desire uh, amongst a lot of diplomats here to have someone leading the UN who is a stronger public voice and so Guterres is, is looking strong both as a a guy with operational experience on the refugees, uh, but also as a, a political communicator. So um, be good to know if it's just about people's presentational skills or whether there are kind of ideological differences between the different candidates. But maybe before we do that, you can tell us what happened to some of the other people during this process. Because in the last podcast, we were uh, talking about both some, some other Europeans. So uh, there's uh, another 
Bulgarian candidate Irina Bokova. There, in fact, why don't you talk about all the other candidates who who, who were uh, prominent in in these straw polls and, and what happened to them? What's gone wrong or right for them? Well, in in total, there have been twelve declared candidates so far, um, and some some candidates never really um, uh, never really made a big impact on on the race. Um, I mean, the initial front runner. Uh, was generally thought to be Irina Bokova, uh, the current head of UNESCO, um, like Georgieva from Bulgaria. And she's um, a former foreign minister as well, is that right? Uh, yes. Um, she, and she has had an extremely uh, well-prepared um, and thorough campaign. But uh, in the straw polls, she is, is flatlining uh, roughly in the middle of the field. Uh, in the last two straw polls, I think she's had seven encourages out of a possible 15 from the Security Council. And it is pretty clear that uh, the UK and the US are strongly opposed to her candidacy. Uh, the reason for that is that they think she is uh, just too close to, to Moscow for comfort. And uh, her candidacy seems to be uh, seems to be blocked uh, because of Western suspicions about um, her, her ties her ties to Russia. On the other hand, one one candidate who looked very strong in the middle of the race was Susanna Malcora, the Argentinian foreign minister. But she's also um, flatlining in the middle of the field with pretty similar figures to Bakova. The reason for that is that if Bakova seems too close to the Russians. Malcora is thought by a lot of observers to be too close to the Americans. Apparently she was Samantha Power's candidate, is that right? Uh, that, is, that is the word on First Avenue. The American ambassador to the United Nations. Um, and so most people's reading of, of the figures is that, uh, that China and Russia at least have been working quite hard to stop her. So those are two strong uh, female candidates who most observers thought would be uh, right up at the top of the the rankings um, at the end of the race who are actually down in the middle. Uh, other, other candidates who have underperformed or not performed as well as we thought uh, include Helen Clark, uh, the former, pre uh, sorry, former Prime Minister of New Zealand, uh, current head of the UN Development Programme. She too has not, has not really gained a, a massive support. Uh, now this is causing quite a lot of heartache around the UN because in Clark, Bukova and uh, Malcora, you have three uh, ostensibly strong uh, female candidates. Uh, a lot of people thought that this was the year for the UN to choose its first uh, female secretary general. Uh, the fact that they're all underperforming uh, makes it look unlikely that we will have a female secretary general unless someone like uh, Georgieva comes into the race. So, um, who are the other candidates? They were they were. People like Kevin Rudd from Australia, Jeremic from Serbia. Um. Well, Vuk Jeremic um, from Serbia is still in there. Um, I think he's polling third with nine encourages, uh, although uh, he, he does face, um, I think, some suspicion from the US. Uh, in second, as we touched on, Miroslav Lajak from, from Slovakia, who had... 10 encourages in the last round and is being talked about as a, a dark horse candidate. Uh, he has uh, a reasonable degree of support from European countries. 
Uh, he's been uh, reaching out to Moscow in his current uh, current role as the foreign minister of the uh, the holder of the EU presidency. He might be able to build a bridge between the West and, and Russia and um, uh, secure the crown at the end of the day. Those are the those are the candidates that that really really count. Uh, there are others such as Danilo Turk, um, the uh, former president of Slovenia, yep, um, and a former UN official too, uh, who performed well early on but have, have faded as the race has gone on. Uh, a lot of people thought that Turk would be a a safe pair of hands, um, a compromise candidate, but uh, apparently he has said some progressive things about human rights in the past that have made the Chinese and Russians nervous. So that seems to be um, undermining his his drive. So what about Kevin Rudd? Well, this was one of the more diverting moments of the race. Um, Rudd had been uh, very carefully preparing a late entry into the competition um, over the last couple of years. Uh, he was in charge of a, a, a huge research project on, on the future of the UN called the International Commission on Multilateralism. He had been lobbying in uh, all the right capitals, putting himself forward as a, uh, um, as a candidate who could rise above uh, the rest. And then just as he was um, preparing to enter the race, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, the Australian Prime Minister and, and the Cabinet, decided to block him. And um, Turnbull came out and said in public some extremely rude things about Rudd, saying that he wasn't fit to hold the post of Secretary-General. And without Australian backing, without the formal nomination of, of the government, uh, Rudd was not able to enter the, enter the competition. Um, it, I think it's unlikely that had Rudd entered, he, he would have have won, he would probably have been uh, a difficult candidate for uh, Russia and China to accept. But you know, he had been thinking pretty hard about the future of the UN. He has a very good profile uh, in in the UN. Um, the Australians really shot themselves in the foot by not letting him at least have a tilt at the uh, at the top job. So what? Are people promising to do? What is the, <clears throat> if you take the, the, the front running candidates, what has Guterres promised to do? What has Miroslav Lyshak promised to do with the UN? What's Jeremich promised to do? What has Bokova promised to do? What is the kind of, uh, what's at stake apart from the, the kind of name, gender, and nationality of the office holder? I mean, to be absolutely honest, those issues of political substance. Um, have remarkably played a, a pretty small role in the race. Um, the, the sort of political issues and the question of gender have taken up far, far more attention. Um, to be honest, most of the candidates have almost identical positions on some of the, uh, the largest issues facing the UN. So what are the big issues? How would you characterise them? Well, there, there are two, two obvious ones where there's a lot of consensus and they are uh, climate change and um, promoting uh, international development. But there the agenda is already set. The, uh, the Paris uh, summit last December laid out an agenda for climate change and the next Secretary General, whoever she or he may be, is simply going to have to 
keep on pushing uh, governments to make good on their, their Paris promises. So everyone says they're going to do that. Similarly, last year, uh, the UN uh, authorized the uh, Sustainable Development Goals, this massive package of development targets, including ending extreme poverty by 2030. Whoever ends up running the UN is really just going to have to keep chipping away uh, on, on those goals uh, rather than innovating in the field of development. So on those issues, there's a lot of agreement. Uh, where we don't see um, any of the candidates really saying anything very clear is in the security realm. And the candidates have to be very, very careful about discussing Syria, uh, discussing uh, Ukraine, and, and the other big crises on the Security Council agenda, because if they put one foot wrong, then either the, uh, the Russians or, or the US will, will veto them. So, again, there's been quite a lot of talk about the need to strengthen peacekeeping. Uh, there have recently been a horrible series of scandals involving peacekeepers sexually abusing uh, civilians where they are deployed. I mean, everyone has massively emphasized the need to uh, the need to end that sort of uh, abuse. But if you're looking at the race and you're hoping that someone's going to come forward with a, a real answer um, on what to do about uh, Syria, then sadly you're going to be, to be disappointed. And how much does it actually matter? Because, I mean, people uh, tend to contrast the, the great Secretary Generals of the UN, the most recent one who... Uh, seen to make a really big impact and won lots of hearts and minds was Kofi Annan um, with the kind of much more pedestrian tenure of, of Ban Ki-moon um, but is the difference really in the fact that um, that Kofi Annan is a is a rather brilliant person he's articulate he's thoughtful he uh, seems to be very, very committed to, to kind of core UN values, as Ban Ki-moon seems to be more of a kind of jobbing technocrat. Is that the difference, or is it more the fact that the world that Kofi Annan was, was working within was one where the West still had the ability to, uh, to define the rules of engagement, to intervene in countries to stop genocide, where it was possible to think about the responsibility to protect... Whereas today we live in a period of, of multipolarity where um, the uh, evolving powers are very unhappy about the big changes that <clears throat> happened to the international system in the 90s, which they felt were kind of forced through by, by Western players and therefore wouldn't allow anybody, no matter how brilliant they were, to, to, to really do very much. That this sort of structure uh, is what determines what's possible because the UN was, is ultimately always going to be a plaything of the great powers rather than the personality of the Secretary General. I'd answer that in two ways. Anan was uh, an effective public uh, political figure and communicator, but I think one strength that he had that Ban Ki-moon has not shown is that he also understood the nitty-gritty of UN field operations. He, he really uh, grasped what was required to make peacekeeping work somewhere like uh, Kosovo or Sierra Leone on, on his watch. And over the last 10 years under Ban Ki-moon, we've seen 
UN peacekeeping grow. There are over 100,000 peacekeepers today. Um, humanitarian operations are at record highs. But BAN has never seemed to really grasp the details of what's going on in the field in, in Africa or the Middle East. I mean, he cares. I think he's a genuinely decent man. But he doesn't really get how the operations work. And so someone like Guterres, uh, who does have operational experience, or someone like Kristalina Georgieva, who was the European Humanitarian Commissioner for, for five years before becoming Vice President, uh, might bring that sort of deep understanding of the field, uh, capacity to provide operational leadership that we've been missing for 10 years. So I think that would would be a change. Uh, Lychak too has, has field experience from the Balkans, so all those three contenders um, have strengths that Ban lacks. Nonetheless, at the high political level, you're absolutely right. The next Secretary-General will be working in vastly more constrained and contentious political circumstances than uh, Anand was working in, uh, at least prior to the Iraq War in 2003. And I think it is going to be very difficult for whoever uh, wins the, the race to navigate great power politics in the Security Council. But it is worth remembering that historically uh, there have been Secretary Generals who were able to navigate great power politics um, quite effectively. Uh, the, the iconic example being Dag Hammarskjöld, who in the 1950s uh, essentially launched UN peacekeeping as a response to the Suez crisis and as an effort to create a buffer between um, the great powers in, in the Middle East. And Hammarskjöld was uh, deeply, deeply involved in the great power politics of his day. Uh, at the end of the Cold War, the, um, the then Secretary General Perth de Cuella, uh, played a pretty significant role in winding up a series of proxy conflicts, uh, including the Afghan conflict with, with the Russians. So, looking back to the, the, you know, the deep days of East-West competition, there are precedents for uh, UN leaders uh, engaging in really high-power politics. Now, we don't know if any of the current candidates uh, would be able to parley with President Putin, let alone President Trump, effectively. Uh, and it is possible that you know, the UN is is on the road to further geopolitical marginalisation, um, but the... Seems quite likely. Uh, yeah, but the, the woman or man at the top does have at least a little room for manoeuvre to try and build some bridges and uh, try and play Hammarskjöld and improve the situation. So, how are things going to work out? I mean, at the beginning you said the, the titillating question this week is about whether Kristalina Georgieva is going to get the nomination of the Bulgarian government who are currently standing behind Irina Bokova because it's clear as you said that unless your host government nominates you you're not going to be a, a candidate um, but you also have these kind of strong uh, alternatives at the top of the leaderboard in uh, Antonio Guterres and, and Miroslav Lychak. Does that mean that people are quite kind of uh, chipper because they all seem to be more substantial figures than Ban Ki-moon? Yes, I think um, the, the, next, the next pivotal moment, unless there's a surprise, will be uh, the 26th of September when we have one last straw poll before the serious voting 
kicks in in October. So what, what the, when you say the serious voting as opposed to the contrivial voting that we've had so far, what, what makes it more serious? Because the as of October, um, the you have these red cards. You have the red cards, so the permanent members will be able to kill off. So if candidates. anyone gets a red card, that's it. They disappear from the list as soon as the red card. Pretty effectively. So um, how much voting is... I mean, this process has been going on for, for uh, as long as one can remember. How, how long is that actually going to carry on for? We don't know. <clears throat> we, um, I mean, what we know is that there will be one more straw poll in September. Now, the Bulgarians have said quite carefully that they will review their support for Bukova after that straw poll. So if she continues to flatline in the middle of the pack, um, Sofia may uh, try and find a way to drop over and bring in Georgieva, and that would be a, a major shift in the race. Then, and would that, if they did do that under that hypothetical scenario, would that be a problem for Georgieva? The fact that she's not been in any of these straw polls before, that she's coming in at the last minute, would she have less legitimacy given how strongly people like Guterres and Lychak have been performing in these straw polls? I think Guterres would certainly use that argument against her. On the other hand, Georgieva has been in a, a funny situation all year because everyone has known that she uh, was a potential candidate. Although at various points she had indicated she, she did not want the job, she was too busy dealing with the fallout from Brexit in, in Brussels, for example, this summer, uh, we've all suspected that she would find a way back in. And so, to some extent, she has... Uh, she's been a quasi-candidate all the way through. And so I think that uh, the fact that she might come in very late would not necessarily torpedo her, her chances. Um, it does make it harder, though, for her to to stand up against Guterres, who, who has so many, uh, you know, so many wins in the straw polls so, so far. Anyway, in... And so why have the Bulgarians not... Because presumably if you're a country like Bulgaria, you don't get that many shots at these jobs of global significance. If Georgieva is a much stronger candidate than Bokova, why have they not made the switch? I, I suggested to the Bulgarian ambassador to the UN at the start of this year that he should be running with the slogan, buy one, get one free, <laughs> which he, um, he quite liked. Um, the answer is very simply that Bukova has Russian support, and uh, Moscow has, I think, lent pretty hard on uh, Bulgaria to keep Bukova in the race. And if you know, if Bukova does drop out and Georgieva enters, it's still possible that Russia uh, will just block her, uh, will block Georgieva um, pretty directly. Now, Moscow has been opaque about that. Um, through the course of the year, the Russians have dropped hints they might actually be able to accept Georgieva. But you know, no, no hint and no promise made during the UN race, especially hints and promises from Moscow, uh, has any value. Um, the game will keep on changing. My suspicion is, is that we'll get into October, we'll start seeing who uh, the, the P5, the, the, big, the big five in the Security Council, I just do not want at all. That will clean out a lot of the field. And then it will come down to, most likely, Guterres, Lychak, and perhaps Georgieva uh, offering, um, offering bargains and offering deals to the main powers uh, to see who can put together the most attractive um, package. So what 
is at stake for Europe? Does it matter very much whether we have a... It sounds like we're going to get a European come what may now, because at the beginning of this process, last time we did a podcast on it, I think there was a lot of strong money from Manuel or from you behind um, Malcora, the, the Argentine lady, and Helen Clark. So it looks like Europe is, uh, is going to maintain its, uh, its stake on this. But um, does that really matter? Does it? Why, do, why does the EU benefit from having a European in that job? The Part of the answer is simply that the European Union combined, uh, if you still include the UK, uh, still covers about a third of the UN's operating budget and uh, also pays an even higher percentage of humanitarian funds. And so I think a lot of European leaders um, uh, would like to see someone uh, running the UN who they can they can talk to very bluntly about the costs of UN operations and um, how to how to manage those more effectively and that's the the simple diplomatic answer I think that it would also be advantageous um, for uh, for Europe to feel there was someone s strong in charge of the UN as we enter a period where you may need uh, more, more UN peacekeeping and stabilisation efforts in the Middle East, um, and also dealing with the refugee crisis. You know, the, the biggest crises that uh, the UN is handling today are those immediately on Europe's southern flank in the Middle East and North Africa. So we want a UN that works, and it would be good to have someone at the helm who uh, who would really drive the UN in, in the right direction. So you know, those are the the practical answers about why it would matter. So. One last question. Who's it going to be? If you had to put money on it, your life savings. Um, luckily, I, I can bet my life savings without really worrying too much about the, um, the outcome as uh, the, the think tank work does not make you rich. Um, I, although I think Lychak could come through, and although I don't uh, rule out um, a complete meltdown, in fact, with the Russians in October... Uh, which could result in some absolutely unheard of candidate, perhaps a um, a super neutral figure from from Switzerland uh, entering the race. Uh, despite all those possibilities, I think we're going to end up with uh, someone beginning with G, either Guterres or, or Georgieva. Um, and there is only one person who can actually tell you which of the Gs it will be, um, and that is Vladimir Putin. Because at the end of the day, uh, this race comes down to uh, which of a number of pretty good Western candidates that the US, UK and France could accept will somehow manage to win over the Russians. And time and again in UN diplomacy, whether over the, um, uh, over the SG race or over much more fundamental issues like Syria, we've learned that uh, that boils down to what Putin feels like. Um, when he wants to send a message to his team in New York. And so we just don't know uh, who he really likes. But your guess is? Someone beginning with G. <laughs> and which one? Um, <laughs> right now, Guterres is, I think, still the presumptive frontrunner. Um, but uh, I, I, would, I would say... I would, if I had to bet now, I would say that there was a 
50% chance of Guterres, 30% chance of Georgieva, um, 20% chance of Lychak, and probably 100% chance that I'm reading it all wrong. So if, if you're right, it means there is a 100% chance that, that it will be an ECFR council member that uh, becomes the next Secretary General of the UN. So we wish them all the best of luck in the straw polls ahead and in the international diplomacy which selects them. We've got one more thing to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Richard, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Um, the... The thing I'm actually reading at the moment is um, John le Carre's highly enjoyable memoir, The Pigeon Tunnel. But for people who've sat through this podcast and who care about the UN, the book that I would recommend reading is something by uh, a former ECFR council member and former head of UN peacekeeping, uh, Jean-Marie Gehenou. Uh, it's a book called The Fog of Peace. It's a memoir of his, um, his time uh, leading UN peace operations under Kofi Annan and uh, briefly under Ban Ki-moon. And I think that it's um, a remarkably frank um, and remarkably uh, realistic account of what we can achieve through international interventions, uh, whether they're UN interventions, European interventions, or, or whatever. And at a time when we're looking at Syria, we're looking at Libya, we, we're asking ourselves whether international interventionism is dead. It provides a very balanced um, and well-written account of what's actually possible when you go into to handle fragile states. So I hope whoever uh, whoever manages to win the battle to, to raise Ban Ki-moon has been reading that during all their shuttle, shuttle flights between Moscow, Beijing and Washington. And if you're still listening to this podcast and uh, you still have an appetite for more stuff about the UN, having listened to us, having read Jean-Marie Guénaud's book, then I would recommend what's on my bookshelf, which is Richard Gowan's excellent analysis of the runners and riders in this race, which is up on ECFR's website. We'll put links to all of these publications up on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash ECFR, on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please tell other people about it. Right on our Facebook page, give us a ranking on iTunes or SoundCloud or Mixcloud or whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast on. Tweet about it and um, let everybody know that you're enjoying it. And if you've got any comments on this podcast or ideas for future podcasts, feel free to write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Richard Gowan and myself, Mark Leonard, in a slightly muggy New York, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke, and our editor is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro. <laughs>